Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. How is the human body, dead and alive, handled in the Middle Ages? Jack Hartnell will join us to discuss his new book, Medieval Bodies. What goes into designing a book cover and the cover of the New York Times Book Review? Our art director, Matt Dorfman, will be here to discuss. Plus, our critics will talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Jack Hartnell joins us now. He is normally at the University of East Anglia, but he joins us from Pasadena, much better weather there. And he is the author of a new book called Medieval Bodies, Life and Death in the Middle Ages. Jack, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just begin with the question of, well, what was different about the human body and the way in which it lived and died in the Middle Ages compared with now? Well, that's a big question. I guess that's, in a sense, the question that runs throughout the whole of the the book. I guess the first thing to say is that what we think of as the Middle Ages, even just the terminology that we use to describe this period, is a kind of sandwichy one. It seems to refer to a time after what people and history often tell us are the kind of grand achievements of ancient Greece and Rome. So maybe the period begins around the year 500. And it's something before the rebirth, the renaissance of those same ideas, I don't know, in the 15th century or the 16th century, depending on where we're talking about in Europe. So we're talking about the whole of the book takes in Europe, the Middle East and North Africa. So basically the world around the Mediterranean for the best part of a thousand years. So that's a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures and a lot of different approaches to the body potentially. So one of the things that I think is really important when we talk about this field is to acknowledge that the difference and that, in fact, what's happening, say, in Europe in this moment is potentially very, very different conceptually to uh, what's happening in other parts of the world as well. So we, I, I try and be quite focused in, in what I think and, and write about. But broadly speaking, again, one of the really interesting things is where we go to try and learn more about mm-hmm. what is actually a relatively misunderstood moment in the past. So there are all sorts of different kind of written sources that we can turn to. But one of the things that I'm particularly interested in as an art historian is the kind of uh, what are the kind of traces that the body and its kind of uh, cultural prominence might leave in visual culture, in material culture. And also we might be able to turn with colleagues in in bioarchaeology to actual physical remains of humans to find out all sorts of different things. So to answer your question, what the body is or how people conceive of it really depends on, in some ways, where you're looking. I'm looking right now at the cover of this (laughs) book, of the U.S. edition, and it's a really, how shall I put it, bloodless depiction, in a way, of a kind of gory amputation of a leg and a replacement, presumably with a with a wooden leg, as conducted by what looks to be religious men, but also with the assistance of several angels, one of yes. whom is sort of carrying the dead lower limb away, and the fellow this is being done to is lying there, eyes closed, his head kind of wrapped up. 
what are we seeing here? And there's no blood. (laughs) There's no blood. So it's a really interesting image. And one of the reasons why we wanted to put it on the cover of the US edition was that it really sums up all of the many different complicated dichotomies that I was just talking about. So the image is actually from an altarpiece. So a large wooden panel painted in oil paint made in Spain, probably at the very end of the 15th century and sometime in the 1490s, we think. It's actually in the Wellcome Collection in London, which is an amazing collection of the history of medicine. And as you say, you have these two men seemingly go about an amputation. Uh, But this isn't a normal amputation. One of the things that's really important to say, and this comes up towards the end of the book, this object in discussions of amputation and various kinds of medieval surgery, European medieval surgery especially, is that such amputations were very rarely undertaken. This is a moment in which medical, the efficacy of surgery in particular, especially what we consider to be serious surgeries, things like amputations, is not something that's often attempted. It's known to be very dangerous and often very unsuccessful. And so, in a sense, this imports the world of kind of ill health from a more secular world and places it instead in a spiritual one. So the two people who are undertaking this miraculous surgery are in fact saints. They're a pair of doctor saints, St. Cosmas and St. Damien, uh, who are often uh, identified as a pair in uh, European medieval Christian thought, actually in in Byzantine thought as well. They're very popular saints in the Byzantine world, so in and around Eastern Europe and and Greece and, and what is today Turkey and the Middle East. And they are two doctors who were, became kind of early saints of the Christian church and are often figures amongst many other saintly figures who were appealed to in times of healing. And this is actually a story that's taken from the miracle narratives which surround these two saints. And the story goes like this. A guy has some kind of problem with his leg. It, some texts describe it as a kind of cancerous growth, others as a much more kind of irritation of the skin, but, but uh, others see it maybe as a, almost a kind of deadening of the leg. Either way, his leg is in trouble. And he falls asleep one night and dreams that he is visited by these two saints who take his leg, amputate it with uh, the the kind of stories talk about golden instruments and kind of beautiful, very unscary (laughs) instruments, very delicate, fine things with the assistance of angels. And they replace it not with a wooden leg, as, as, as it does maybe seem like, but actually with the leg of an African man who had died the previous day. And this leg is miraculously grafted on, and surely enough, the man awakes to discover that his leg has in fact been amputated. And it, was, uh, it wasn't necessarily a dream, or if it was a dream, it's been made real upon awaking. And he goes and continues to pay homage to these saints in, in thanks. So it gives us a really interesting idea of, firstly, the kind of practicalities of, of some parts of medieval medicine. People are aware it's dangerous to do this kind of thing, so the fact that it's successful is in itself a miracle. But the very idea that we're talking about miracles and medicine as being a spiritual concern, I think, draws us back to, to thinking a little bit about how, in some ways similar today, but in some ways very differently to today, especially in the often heavily religious contexts of the later Middle Ages, how healing could be seen, a kind of bodily health and sickness could be seen as both a kind of physical sickness, but also a moral spiritual one. So one to which we could turn to a doctor, a real life doctor, a physician or a surgeon or apothecary or a midwife, but also in the Middle Ages to kind of more spiritual moments of cure. So it's quite a striking image and one which pulls all those interesting things together. In this image and in this story, the doctors are saints, but not all doctors or people who we might have considered doctors, people who practice medicine as it was then understood, would be 
saint-like because they didn't really know what they were doing a lot of the time, right? Like, what was the what was the state of medicine? And I realize, again, there's going to be variation between Europe and Cairo and Constantinople and other parts of the world, but... Oh, well, I wouldn't say that they didn't know what they were doing. And I think that, that kind of is, if you don't mind me saying, kind of typical of our modern attitude to this period. I'm bringing in a, a 21st century snobbery to it, I'm a- sorry. Absolutely. Well, but also, I think it's kind of a natural thing. I don't call it out to necessarily to kind of shame us in the modern world because you know that's what we do. That's what everyone in every time has done in some senses is that, you know, if the time before us was terrible, then it means that we now are enlightened and positive and a kind of future-spective and these kind of wonderful beings of modernity. So in a way, it's a very natural thing for us to think this way. But really where I begin the book is that the kind of strong suggestion of trying to persuade the reader that we really need to revise our impression of this moment. Because although some of the technologies which were available to medics and healers of the past were not nearly as sophisticated as our own, there were still nonetheless very complicated, detailed, theoretical understandings of the body on its own terms. So to come back to your point about uh, who some of these healers might be, well, this is a really interesting question because it seems historians of medicine who have looked very carefully at this kind of material have identified that the medical world in the later Middle Ages, let's say in Europe, just as today, was a very stratified, potentially very stratified place um, with many different kinds of healers ranging on what we might say is quite a broad professional spectrum. Uh, So on the one end, we might place the figure of the physician, not necessarily exactly the same as the physician that we know today, but similar in some ways. These are extremely well-read individuals who have really dug into the detailed treatises passed down from the classical world and revised in the earlier Middle Ages, which talk about the fundamental makeup of the body, how it's understood, to some degree, especially towards the end of the period, an awareness of of anatomy, and certainly an awareness of, of different kinds and processes of cure. These are figures who are university trained. Now, again, universities in the Middle Ages emerging in the 12th and 13th centuries are not the same kind of place as modern universities. They're not open to everyone. They are institutions for men only, good Christian men at that in the European context. But nonetheless, there's a kind of scholastic, academic, universalizing knowledge. And there's not really the same sense that of specialization in a university medical degree in the Middle Ages. A physician, in a sense, is judged by his kind of depth of knowledge across a range of subjects. So these are really smart, learned individuals steeped in the kind of scholarly approach to medicine. But then we might range from those kind of healers all the way through to figures like surgeons. It comes as a surprise to many people that surgery and physicianship are quite separated in many parts of medieval Europe. And that's because surgeons, as practical healers, people think of the word surgery and its etymology, okay, chirurgia, or back to the kind of Greek chiros urgos, literally meaning hand and work, handiwork. Hmm. These are people who physically manipulate the body and are actually you know, extremely carefully trained, but not in necessarily a learned literate sphere, but in a much more practical way. These are figures who belong to guilds, are trained in workshops, uh, are apprentices to master surgeons. So they kind of have a much more hands-on 
training, much like, say, a medieval blacksmith or a woodworker. Uh, and they, we know from the archaeological as well as the written evidence, are very good at a number of different procedures. The setting bones, for instance, is something that we can tell from um, archaeological excavations of medieval skeletons. We can, we can see that bones which were broken were reset and reset mm. very well. Um, likewise, um, heat treatments of the skin. It's actually in the 15th century that we get some of the earliest accounts of successful plastic surgery. So um, things that might be done, especially around the face, there's a rhinoplasty, for instance, the resetting of and, and kind of growing of skin around the nose is something that began to be attempted in this moment. Likewise, then we also have another range of healers. Historians often call them empirics, people who, again, much more physically and practically bound up with the body, but maybe who are less interested in scholastic healing and more to do with what I guess we might call folk healing or herbal healing. These might just be wise, older individuals of certain smaller rural communities, often women. Likewise, midwives are figures that emerge professionalized in, in different complicated ways throughout the period. So there are loads of different people to whom you can turn, each of whom have this quite detailed and focused training. I guess part of the problem is that when we talk about the period as the Middle Ages, again, this in-betweenness comes back to, to haunt the idea that people, you know, gives us the kind of, in some ways, quite natural understanding that, or sense that people knew nothing. But well, actually, I didn't call you know, it the Dark Ages, at least. Good. Excellent. Yes, <laughs> no. And I mean, you know, just to think about that term, the Dark Ages, really sums up what I think is a very common misunderstanding of the moment. And I think it's not just the darkness and unpleasantness, but it's more that if we really get down to it, many cultures during the Middle Ages had just simply a far less sexier group of standards. Um, you know, today in modernity, we're all about thrusting forward, revising the norm, changing things, a kind of this deep sense that the future is kind of tangible, especially in medicine, right? Think about all the medical advances that we're constantly talking about today. Uh, we talk more about medical advances than we do about medical miracles. But ideas, I think, uh, around medicine and just uh, um, knowledge in the Middle Ages are often, like I said, slightly less maybe exciting by modern standards. They're about preserving ideas over the mm -hmm. course of centuries, keeping ideas alive in spite of sometimes very trying cultural circumstances. And so you can see why that appeals to us less, but why that maybe is, is no less important. You could have organized the book by geography, places where medical advancements were more pronounced, or by chrono chronology, looking at the way in which medicine and the understanding of the human body developed over the course of that, you know, near 1,000-year-long period. But instead, you chose to organize your book by body part, which mm. is interesting. And I'm wondering, was that just, was that obvious to you that this is the way I'm going to do it? Or you could have done it by age. You could have looked at the body from birth through childhood and adolescence and into old age. Yeah, they all sound like great books. And in a way, I could definitely have, I definitely thought about them. But really, actually, the, the, the structure of the book took its cue from medieval medical writings themselves. So often when a medieval physician, so an individual from that more learned scholastic milieu, especially, say, in the, I don't know, 14th century in Europe, sat down, and in other parts of the world, sat down to write a medieval treatise, a collected set of cures uh, and theorizing of how to treat the body from top to bottom. That is exactly how they, they, they laid it out. 
the phrase that in Latin that they use is a capite ad calcem, literally from head to heel. Mm -hmm. And so they would begin with cures often of the head, things to do with headache, baldness. You know, these cures are kind of somehow thrown together, even though they seem very different from different parts of medicine in, in our kind of modern sense. All the way running down through cures of the chest and breathing, of the stomach, of the genitals, all the way down to things like sores on the bottom uh, you know, of your feet, uh, of warts on your toes kind of thing. And that seemed to me a really interesting way to structure things because what it didn't do is necessarily privilege, as you say, a particular time or place. It's very easy to then try and, say, search out in the, the Middle Ages moments where we think of as particularly advanced by modern standards. But actually, again, if, if the point here is to try and not judge everything by our own standards of today, but to think about how medicine and cure and also its survival in material and kind of historical sources might differ. And that might be the thing that affects our understanding rather than, you know, in comparison to our own day. Actually, it made sense to take the body itself and to take this medieval cue as a structure. And indeed, you know, what I, what I try to do is, is not just to give, you know, the medical understanding of from head to toe, but to begin often with ideas of medicine and ideas of cure, but to show how actually the body was a much broader cultural generator in this moment. So when we talk about heads in the book, we talk about cures for headache, but I kind of quite quickly start to move on to thinking about how the head was very important in medieval constructions of a kind of a human-centric world, that mankind's head was seen as one of its things that gave it dominance over the animal kingdom, or to talk about relics of the head, which occur in a number of different religious cultures of the Middle Ages, or to talk about baldness and the hair and beauty and hair products. I'd love to end with one body part of your choosing, perhaps a favorite or one that most surprised you in doing your research, or you just think, we don't really understand in the same way that we did back in medieval period. Mm, that's really interesting. I often go and kind of talks about this material. You know, I teach this material a lot, and at one, often in my, my talks, I kind of because we obviously don't have time to go from, you know, fully from head to toe in the way no. that the book does. So what I do is I give people a choice. I sort of throw up three objects. And the choice I give them is between this kind of beautiful, small ivory carving, which is all about hands and tactility and touching, an image of the Virgin, which is actually today in the Metropolitan Museum in, in New York, which opens up. It's a little shrine of the Virgin where her body opens up to reveal figures inside, almost like a kind of Matryoshka doll, a Russian doll. I say we could talk about ideas of reproduction and the womb, which is a big part of the cult of the Virgin, but also obviously a huge part of medieval medical understanding. Or I should throw up a picture of the head, which has a little diagram inside of the brain. From a, Well, it's, it's kind of more the process of medieval thought, as it was understood in the 13th century, a manuscript now in, in Cambridge in the UK. And I've never had an audience who don't pick the brain. It's something that people are absolutely fascinated with. And I think that in, in some ways, it, firstly, it's really interesting to think about how medieval people understood thought. It's understood and written about and through a series of stages which happen in different parts of the brain, stretching from you know, beginning at the front of the brain with the, the sensus communis, the common sense, mm -hmm. literally all of the senses pulled together. Then through various processes, it passes through different cells, one known as the imaginatio, the imagination, less like the modern imagination, but more images, right, from, from the medieval Latin term imago, which can mean image, but also means something more spectral. It's the 
word people use for a ghost or a kind of uh, specter. So the idea of turning these senses into images, and that these images are processed by our reason and ultimately stored in, in the memorativa, in the memory, which is at the back of the brain. And it's a, a literally, it's kind of discussed as a literally a, a spongy part of the brain onto which these images are literally imprinted, and which over the course of time, the image and the imprint fades, which is why we forget our memories. So it shows a really interesting conceptualization in a moment which for various complicated social and uh, other reasons, you know, this is before anatomies of the brain are taking place. But there's an understanding of thought as having this kind of quite beautiful structure to it. And I think so uh, people are partly interested for that structure and how it was understood in the past. But I think they're also interested because today, you know, even now, even with all of the our kind of newfangled technologies of this, that and the other ways in which we can look inside the body, we can sequence our genomes, we can find all sorts of kind of complicated ways of, of reading the inside of ourselves, we still don't know very much about the brain. It feels like a kind of frontier for us, something to aim towards. And actually, you know, one of the reasons why I really like talking about that with groups is, is you know, I think if we want to be seen sympathetically by cultures in 500 years' time who look back, and I'm sure we'll think of many things that we do today as kind of deeply barbaric and very kind of basic in medical understanding, then I think we have to have just as much sympathy for people 500 years before us. All right, Jack, you've brought me along. I am persuaded that oh, we good, are good. not that far apart from our medieval counterparts. Jack, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Jack Hartnell is the author of Medieval Bodies, Life and Death in the Middle Ages. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. I want to take a moment to tell you about a new series of events we've created called Book Review Live. At each event, we'll use books as a jumping off point into larger discussions that help us better understand our world, kind of like we do here on the podcast. The first one is happening the evening of January 14th at the Times Center in New York City. We'll be welcoming Cheryl Boudin and my colleague Nick Kristoff to talk about their new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. They'll be in conversation with our critic, Jennifer Salai. The book is a story about the disintegration of America's working class, as seen through the eyes of Nick and Cheryl's friends and neighbors. To dig deeper into the themes of tightrope, we'll also hear from my colleague Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
watch clips from a new documentary based on the book, and enjoy readings from a surprise guest. You can buy tickets at nytimes.com slash bookreviewlive. Hope to see you there. Our art director at the Book Review, Matt Dorfman, joins us now to talk a little bit about his job as the art director of the Book Review, but also an illustrator and designer of book covers. Matt, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I see you every day. So, but not here in the studio. <laughs> no. Many of you who listen to the podcast don't necessarily see the Book Review online or in print, but I would like to say here that it is an object of beauty, and that is largely due to Matt's skill as an art director. Director. And being the art director of the New York Times Book Review, I have to say, is a pretty sweet gig. We've had some really great art directors in the past. I happen personally to think it's the best art director position here at the Times, although there are probably some ADs who might disagree with that assessment. But it's a pretty sweet job. So, Matt, tell us about how great it is. In a lot of respects, it's it's kind of the only job. It's hard for me to conceptualize what else I would want to do, only because I never really thought in my wildest imagination that I would ever be given the keys to drive this particular kind of car. When I was in college, there was periodic allusions to the idea of, oh, if you're lucky, the art director of the book review or somebody else at the Times will hit you up to do an occasional spot or, you know, heaven forbid, somebody taps you and lets you do a cover or something like that. But it was never really put in your head that that was something that you could expect to do with any kind of regularity mm-hmm. or let alone even be up for a job like that. So I'm I still haven't really woken up from the fact that this is actually something that I have to come in to work every day and actually do. Matt is only allowed to say good things about working here <laughs> at the book review on this podcast. Um, the outtakes will be <laughs> for some other podcast. An amazing B-roll. <laughs> uh, this is my fourth year. I think I just crossed the threshold into into year four. What's gratifying about it and what makes it so consistently interesting is really everything that you guys bring to it because our section is named after the fundamental technology but it's really just the craziest possible idea section and so having to bring all these wild and crazy ideas that are bubbling up in all these books and just to bring some kind of visual personality to every last tiny little component it's interesting it has to stretch me in every possible way because i've got to think about big things like covers and and even broader, bigger interactive packages and these little bugs that go into print that people maybe might look at for maybe less than a quarter of a half of a millisecond. You're working with various editors at the Book Review on reviews or essays or other kinds of pieces that they are working, going back and forth with them, looking at the sketches. With me, you're primarily working on the cover. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you go about this. You get the review in. We say, okay, this is going to be the cover. Your first thing you do is presumably read the review. <laughs> Where do you go from there? <laughs> no, I, I read everything two or three times. What's helped me to do this faster is that I'll read everything twice in tandem, and then I'll just begin writing briefs. I don't have an idea in my head of what I think these pictures should look like yet. Before I even start thinking about who I want to assign this to, I actually start writing, actually. And I'll, I will begin writing briefs and, and giving this imaginary illustrator, whoever I, I'm interested in hiring for this, I will give them like a broad outline of what I think the 
general argument of the story is or what the main narrative thrust is. And uh, I think if I can regurgitate that in written form, that helps me make other decisions about who I want to hire pretty quickly after that. So when you do go to the illustrator that you want to hire, you're sending that person both the review as well as the brief to kind of guide them. Yeah, I'm sending them both. And if I feel like I haven't really yet grasped what the most salient part of the story might be, I will also include like an Amazon summation or something like that or something that can render the book in like the barest, I mean, I hesitate to say this, but like sellable terms so that they'll be able to recognize at least the most salient like plot points and understand, you know, time setting and, you know, fundamental. How do you find illustrators? It's gotten easier insofar as that there's more resources now than ever for people to share their work. And I mean, I'm a pretty easy person to find. So I get lots of email solicitations and mail solicitations and social media solicitations that I do not want. But my antenna is pretty finely tuned in such a way now that I'm never really not looking at Mm -hmm. things. Like even if I'm like, it's very difficult for me to scroll through Instagram recreationally. Like it's very much like a work thing. It's like I'm, uh, it's like I'm in there and I'm paying very strict attention to anything that really gets my, really gets the needles moving at all. So, I mean, like that's, I'm loath to say it, but that is a, that is a place that I do look for artists. And I mean, I'm excited to find them anywhere, but for the most part, it's rare that I would hire somebody just by seeing one example of their work. I'm looking at their whole portfolio. If I think that it's, it's the kind of thing that they would even thrive in an editorial context like this with, you know, like a pretty pronounced deadline and needing the kind of oversight that I do in order to see sketches and proposals up front just to make sure that they're not totally going crazy. Back in the day, people would have to come into the Times office building, Mm -hmm. right, carrying a huge portfolio of work. Now you can just go onto Instagram and see everything, and every artist seems to have their own website or they belong to an agency where there are multiple portfolios available online. Were you working throughout that transition? Like, does anyone actually come in anymore with a big portfolio to show you what they've done? Actually, yeah, I have meetings all the time. No, people always come in. And I I think just because it still remains the very, very best way to really get a sense of well, certainly the person. And it's a nice way to get a window into somebody else's work. My expectation is not that they necessarily have to talk about their work, mm-hmm. but so much of this is tied and reliant on interpersonal exchanges and being able to communicate with another person. So if I feel like I can sit with a person and they're relatively relaxed and they feel generally good about what they do and they're excited about doing a lot of that stuff, that can really only help advance the cause and keep me interested in in wanting to see what they do or how they might respond. I assume that not all art directors are illustrators themselves, but you are. Is that an advantage, do you think, in terms of how you go about your work as an art director? In terms of sleep, it is not an advantage. It is, it's a disadvantage. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of in everything else, in a work capacity, I think it, it helps quite a bit because I think I'm able to establish a level of confidence and trust with another illustrator that they know that I've been in those private dark moments mm-hmm. as well where I'm struggling with an idea that I can't seem to make cohere on the page. And I think that helps me to establish a quicker shorthand with them, which is good when we don't have a lot of time. So in the course of your work as an illustrator, you do things for the New York Times. You've done things for page one of the main section. You've done work for the book review, often uncredited. If you see the New York Times as the illustrator <laughs> credit, you know that that's Matt. He's very humble about his own work in our pages. But he, you also do work in the magazine. One of the most interesting things, at least from my perspective, it seems, is 
your work as an illustrator of books. Mm. So you design book covers. How does that come about? You get a call, I'm assuming, from an art director at a publisher, and what goes from there? More or less. I was working on book covers, I think, before I came here to the Times. I was doing it purely as a freelance measure just to see if I could do it. I was so miserable in my previous life when I was working in the music industry, just from a professional standpoint. I didn't see how I was really going to evolve in any way as a person doing that kind of work. So as an initiative to alleviate some of my boredom, I would start contacting art directors and publishers because it struck me as something that I was interested in doing it. And it also seemed like it was something that I could do at night when I wasn't being, you know, completely bombarded at my job. So I think that those assignments started to come to me kind of in tandem with when I started doing a lot of editorial work at the Times as well. So I was really doing double duty for the better part of, God, at this point, probably about 10 years, where I would be trying to balance these two parts of my uh, my work self, like during the day and during the evening. And so really now, it because I've done enough of them and I had been lucky enough to be attached to, if not like a couple books that turned into bestsellers, then there were other... Tell us some titles. Well, there's The Psychopath Test by John Ronson, and then the two subsequent books by John Ronson, I think probably did a fair amount of like advancing the cause of, oh, here's a guy that can design some some covers for you. He might be out of his mind, but I don't know. Like here's a, here's a, <laughs> here's a thing that he can do. And I think that like those turn into like these tiny little calling cards that will get an erstwhile stranger at a publisher who doesn't know me from anyone to get a little bit more comfortable in reaching out to me and seeing if I want to work on something. And those lead times are usually pliable enough that if I completely bomb in my and the ideas that I submit to them are garbage, they can freely cut me loose. You get the book, I'm assuming, in manuscript. Mm-hmm. First step, reading the book. Mm-hmm. Are there instances where you say, nope, not for me. I send this back. I don't want to illustrate this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Why? Well, because I, ha- I have to sleep, and I have a small child, and I have to come to work and, <laughs> and be <laughs> and have a and you know and maintain a generally uh, you know agreeable temperament throughout the waking hours. So, what is it that makes you want to say yes to a book? I mean, in a perfect universe, it's got to be a little bit weird. I mean, I, so you're bringing that onto yourself, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess for better or worse, I'm I'm inviting it. I think the thing that I love about books is the is the same thing that I hate about certain people. I mean, I like books that are really, really self-absorbed and are really almost in many ways kind of cut off from the rest of the outside world and just really boring deep down into whatever ideas that they're chasing. If there's some kind of, you know, narrative provocation or if, if it's nonfiction, if it's, a you know, like big ideas about things that are happening now or things that had happened in the past and now they're doubling back on the present, if it's a powerful idea that I know that I will care about at 1 a.m., which is generally when I'm hitting my stride with that stuff, then that's usually enough for me to sign on and say yes. Give us an example of a book you recently illustrated and why you chose to take that on. You know, it hasn't come out yet, but I just finished a cover for a reissue of a collection of Julio Cortazar short stories called All Fires the Fire. And that, I mean, that was special for a lot of reasons insofar as I love Julio Cortazar. <laughs> and they were such strange, disparate, surreal stories that I felt like this was a situation in which the art director had given me like a really pretty broad goalpost to indulge some of my more abstract impulses and gave me a chance to kind of run in the opposite direction. So no fire on the cover. There's the inference of fire, but yeah, but no like actual straight ahead fire. And there was another one that I think that came out earlier this year called King of the Mississippi, 
which has the configuration of two dudes in suits who are engaged in a handshake, but they've got no heads. They've got knives where their heads should be, and they're in the middle of this cross duel. And the story is about like these two consulting bros who hate each other and how they kind of keep upping the stakes at the consulting firm that they work with. Both of those books presented opportunities for me to just feel like I could embrace the spirit of what I was reading and forget for a couple hours of, at a time that I actually had work to do. Were those two bros on the cover with knives as heads, was that the first image you came up with and sent to them and said, this is what I want to do? Or did you have like 10 different things and you eventually got there? Oh, it's very rare that I land on my best idea first. I'm the sort of person that has to produce a lot of bad work up front in order to get to stuff that will end up connecting with somebody else down the road. Usually when I'm particularly stuck, my process is to make something that I know is deliberately horrible and then work backwards. What's the best thing, the most enjoyable thing, the most inspirational thing, the most exciting thing, the most fun thing about your work? I'm forcing you to be positive in that, <laughs> which I know is hard. <laughs> no, I think that— I, And the worst thing I know is editors, but— No, no. <laughs> the editors are actually—no, no, the, well, the best thing is that we have a set schedule, is that we know what we have to do all the time. That's the most exciting thing, that, like, to be jumping into the cover that we're working on now— and then knowing that next week there's going to be something completely different that I'm going to have to pivot in my head and totally rewire all of my curatorial impulses. That's very exciting. I think work can drive me crazy just as much as it could drive anybody crazy. But I can say with 100% certainty that I never get bored coming into work here. Well, we like that too. See, so word and picture people can't get along. See? Word and number people, maybe not. Word and picture people, yes. <laughs> All right. Matt Dorfman is our art director. Matt, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. This is John Williams, and I'm here with the Times' staff book critics, Parl Sagel, Jen Salai, and from afar on his phone, Dwight Garner, to talk about their recent reviews and a couple of other subjects. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, John. Happy New Year, John. Dwight, talk about something you recently reviewed. You know, it's been a while. I've been on vacation, and I feel like it's been years. It's amazing. What <laughs> 10 days off will do. You know, I've forgotten how to read, I think. Um, but uh, the last thing I did, I, you know, I read it about 10 days early. I felt guilty about it. So I booked the publishers, I think, early next week on January 7th. I did it just before Christmas. But it's a new translation of The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I hope I'm saying, how do you pronounce it? Sun Tzu? I'm pretty Tzu? sure. It's among the first translations by, in any modern language, by a woman, a woman named Michael Nyland, who teaches at Berkeley. As I say in my review, I've read this book a couple of times because, you know, it's short and it tends to be around and it's easy to read. I mean, it's about psychology as much as war. And people have always tried to apply it to dating and to, you know, relationships and to, into business and to life. Do they try to do that? I do. I know these are such universals. <laughs> and um, I don't know, you know, I, I, somehow it, it never quite sticks with me, but this is among the better translations I've read, and I've read a couple. And she just has a way. She just boils down this text, and the writing is very flinty. Her translations, I compared it to several other ones, and I think it's quite a good one. You've read this book several times. You, you, you're a very nice guy. What subconscious things are you doing to me throughout the year? As, as, as I say in my review, I, I, I like to think of myself as someone who has no you know, ulterior motives. I like to think of myself as being like a platter of cold cuts. I'm not there for anyone to take it. Like, I'm wide open. But, you know, maybe I'm not. Maybe, 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 maybe I'm not. <laughs> maybe, 
maybe I'm secretly, you know, trying to find a way to, uh, you know, have some poisonous cold cuts. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm reading this. Maybe I want to be devious. And maybe I'm learning things. I don't know. But as I say in my review, all of this cavilling is what a cavilling is what a uh, devious person would say. <laughs> <laughs> now I really don't know what to think, right? I, I still consider you a friend. I think it was Sun Tzu who said, don't assume your enemy is a platter of cold cuts. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, you wrote a rave this week. Yeah, so this week I reviewed a book called Uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner, and she's currently a staff writer at The New Yorker, but for five years, starting in 2013, I believe, she worked in the tech startup world in Silicon Valley mostly. And, you know, she was somebody who she describes herself as, I think she was raised in New York. She worked for a literary agency. And, you know, eventually she got tired of essentially not the being sort of, paid. Yeah, essentially that. <laughs> and also the sense that she had, even though, you know, she clearly loves art and literature, was that in terms of her job and the life that she wanted to create for herself, there wasn't this sense of possibility, I think, at the time. And so, you know, in 2013, Silicon Valley still looked like a place of promise. This was before the Snowden revelations. This was before, I think, all the talk that people have been engaging in right now in terms of surveillance capitalism and privacy issues. And so she moved out there after working for an e-reading app here in the city for a few months. And, you know, she was she describes herself as a non-tech woman in tech. So she was working for in consumer support as well as terms of service. And she's really there when this transformation is taking place, I think, when people you know, begin the news begins to trickle out that things in the valley aren't necessarily going as planned. And so the book really captures a culture, I think, and it really, I think what it also does really well is describe how somebody who is skeptical, I mean, she arrives skeptical, still gets seduced by what's going on there. But she's she wasn't. Really, she wasn't on like the coding side of it. She was. She much, wasn't she's not on a the granular co- tech person. No, I mean she had to learn a little bit of tech stuff in order to do essentially the translating between what the company was doing and what the customers needed or mm-hmm. what the clients needed. So she is always an outsider in that sense. Also, as a woman, you know that's that's a big part of the book where she's working for these guys. A lot of them are younger than she is. These founders of these startups. And she's and she's, she's twenty five when she starts, <laughs> and. So, you know, she's working for these young guys, and she's always trying to understand what motivates them. She really wants to empathize with them. And then I think at the end, she sort of realizes, oh, wait a second, a lot of them are just in it for the power. That becomes pretty clear to her. And even if their motivations are complicated, what they're doing in terms of making money, in terms of creating the system that we all live in and monetizing it, you know, that's not as complicated, I think, as she initially wants to believe. And so Mm. the book is also this coming-of-age story. And, you know, she does a really good job of balancing those two impulses of wanting to empathize and tell these individual stories, but also convey a system that eventually becomes overwhelming. Well, I'd already been hearing good things about that book and then your review. But it's also when I read your review, I realized, like, how much it, it, like, patterns onto such a classic story like it's almost jamesian like the corrupting yes. of the young that's you true know, idealistic yes. that's true young american specifically american woman and i think that that's also an interesting thing about this book which is that that narrative mm. 
is something that's, you know, age old. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the specifics mm-hmm. that she gets at with this particular era in tech, because there have been a lot of tech memoirs. And there have been actually a number of tech memoirs of this particular era, but they're often told by people who are so ensconced in it in the technical side, or else, you know, people who write about it as satire. And she really, I think, maintains this insider-outsider perspective, which is really And I feel like we all have that perspective. You know, I mean, I'm sort of addicted to all that stuff while hating it. I mean, there's this constant push and pull of how you relate to that stuff. Yes. I also like the decision that you mentioned in your review to not name certain things, like not to name Amazon or Snowden, but to refer to them in these sort of... Right. General descriptive, which gives it that kind of timeless It gives feeling. it a timeless feel. And there is also something weirdly post-apocalyptic in a way where <laughs> you, you, you hear her talk about these companies and including the companies she works for as, you know, the analytics startup or the open source platform. And you something just sort of... Something fable-like almost. Yeah. So it encourages you to think about it. I, I do think that Invoking the word Amazon or invoking the word GitHub or invoking the word Google, that would just elicit all kinds of particular reactions or, you know, just allow people to just read over it with their own preconceived notions of what that entails. But she really makes things look strange in a way, which I think is really helpful. I think especially right now when I think people are trying to understand, okay, well, what what is this world that we live in? Doing to us. Yeah, who's who's making money off of it? What is our role in it? Where's my cut? Where's my cut? How much do I like this world? I mean, a lot of it is very convenient. It's really brought a lot of things that people really enjoy or need in some way. But at the same time, there's something else that's going on. Yeah. Well, you moved it to the top of my pile. Parl, what did you review this week? I reviewed a book called Don't Believe a Word by The Guardian editor and writer, David Shariat Madari. And if I'm mangling your name, please at me. Um, <laughs> and it's it's a really smart, interesting look at linguistics. And he's making the point that, you know, there have been so many new findings in the, in the field about how we acquire language, how animals communicate, but it's just not getting out into the broader public. It's really easy to read. It's really smart. But I, if I'm very honest, the reason I love this book is that we share an enemy. And is there anything sweeter? So <laughs> he really comes at, this sounds like the art of war, but, yeah. like, um, <laughs> but he really comes at grammar snobs in this way that I, and, and grammar snobs fill me with this kind of blinding rage. And he really comes at these people that style themselves as protectors of the English language and of language in general and makes the point that you don't understand the first thing about language. Language is always in flux. When it changes, it's frequently changing in ways that are very rule-bound and systematized. And he does this by just showing us how the simplest words have changed. Our anatomy changes words. Bodies like to say certain things in a particular way because our lungs function the way they do. And our nasal cavities. And our nasal cavities do. And at the same time, we unconsciously will change our accents in ways that we don't even know we're doing to signal belonging or to single yearning for certain kinds of status. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not the way that so many books on language can be sort of funny and playful. It's not those things. It's, it's quite earnest, but <laughs> it's really well done. And it does really synthesize a lot of recent discoveries and things that can be very, very complicated in a way that feels very friendly and lucid. And speaking of accents, mm-hmm. dolphins? Dolphins have accents. And birds use grammar. And it's full of these like absolutely delicious facts. 
I'm now ever since I ever since it's like yesterday, but since I read you write that thing about dolphins, I now picture dolphins having Boston accents. They do. They have regional accents. It depends where they are. There's a like a northern accent. There's like a I'm sure like a dolphin rural accent. <laughs> dolphin wearing a Tom Brady jersey. Oh my god. Okay. Well, those are those are your recent reviews, and now we have a special little bonus portion of this week's segment, which is a, a letter from a listener of ours named Rebecca Sonkin. Thanks for listening, Rebecca, and for writing in. She writes. On the December 13th podcast, Paul Sagal and Dwight Garner revealed a writing tip that's new to me. Looking to food criticism for sensuous description and music criticism for emotional description. Would the critics consider sharing some of their sources? Go to, offbeat, I'll take it all. And this was referring to something you said where you sort of, when you when you sometimes felt not stuck, but just like you wanted a kind of freshening of your No, stuck. Totally stuck. We have, we have the same adjectives we always turn to. Right, right. So, Dwight, you want to start us off? Do you have anybody in particular or any kind of extension of that tip? Yeah, well, you know, for me, the, the go-tos in my early days were uh, A.J. Liebling, the great New Yorker writer who wrote about food and boxing and World War II. He was a correspondent during the war. And, and Calvin Trillin. And one of the reasons I think maybe the kids don't read as much these days is that a lot of us, at least my generation, and I think for all of yours as well, we had to read to find out about the world, like, you know, how people really live. Now there's the Internet. There's, there's a million ways to find out about how people live, what they do, what they eat. Back then, you would read books to find out how things worked. And, these, and one of the things for me discovering was food. It was like discovering reading. This was back before everybody was a foodie. You know, everybody's a foodie now. But back in the 70s and 80s, when I first read these people, it was like finding out about a new drug. You know, oh, if you smell the air in this one place, you get this weird electric intellectual high. You know, who knew that, you know, food was just something you poured in your body to keep going? It was fuel. And reading Trillin and Liebling was just discovering this whole new new way of being joyous in your life. And in terms of being, in terms of writing, the thing that they did that was so great was that they're both high-minded and make fine distinctions. They're very serious writers, and yet there's nothing fussy about them ever. You know, no sense of lifting a pinky while drinking a cup of tea. You know, they're very matter-of-fact. And they have this brilliant way with metaphor that always really just turned me on. And ways of describing things, let's say things that were just, you know, beneath them, things they didn't like, but in a way that never sounded mean, in a way that made fine distinctions, but never cool and always charming and looking for the next pleasure in life. Hmm. Parl, what about you? I love the British music critic Ian Penman, and he doesn't write about music that I'm particularly interested in. I just really like his adverbs and adjectives. And he has this one piece that he wrote. I think, gosh, it was it was so long ago, but it's about it's about Patti Smith. I remember reading it. I just remember the way like it just sort of I don't know something just like went off in my brain. And he just does this reading of the cover of Horses. It's, it's horses, right? She's got the jacket around mm-hmm. her yeah. her under shoulder, and he just describes. He's this little phrase where he goes, "Her nagging sexiness," and like he's <laughs> it's stuff like that where he just mixes senses in this kind of like really interesting synesthetic way. But I also really love MFK Fisher. Because nothing she describes sounds very tasty. You know? <laughs> it always sounds like she's, she's a great food writer, the great wartime food writer. Everything sounds, it sounds awful. And, but there's a certain kind of stringy adjective that she has. It's just very visceral and interesting. And she writes about food and money in a way that I don't think people do that a lot. Mm-hmm. I also really love wine criticism usually while drinking wine. Now, that's hard. I think wine but criticism this is, is this really is hard why. to do well. Wine like? criticism and also perfume criticism, which I like. Oh, because yeah. you can't have... Well, see, I like that book. I agree with that. You can't anyway, have access to these things. But I think it's also because I like those adjectives and I'm constantly trying to think about what's a tannic sentence? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's a full-bodied sentence? Right. So I think it kind of just like... It, it kind of cross-pollinates in my brain and kind of enters in. Like, can I look at language in a way that can look at it like food or like a scent and and give somebody the 
fragrance coming off of it. Yeah. Well, I do think the interesting thing about this question is that, you know, writing about writing is so direct and one-on-one. Yes. And there are things that I think people have to do in other, that, that they have to call on other resources because there isn't this grammar well, that just translates quote. completely directly. You can't quote. Yeah. But that's what I sometimes get frustrated with, you know, wine and food writing and things because the same way I do because unlike reality shows, I hate cooking reality shows because you don't know what it tastes like. You know, Project Runway, you can judge the fashion for yourself or there's an interior design show in the UK that I like. But with cooking, there's, and, and music, you can hear it. But huh. you're just watching the judges eat these things and you're like, well, I, I don't know Even if this the great- is any good. British I know everyone loves the great but, but British they, the best thing about it is that you can't taste it so the pressures on the language to try to communicate no, that in writing, to you. Yes. in, the, in yeah, writing yeah. I also really love fashion writing just and not that I care at all about fashion but I love the idea that the really really great fashion critics will just tell you about the lineage you know they have such a sense of where this particular cut comes from you know right. what it's referencing and that's always very exciting to me Carl I got, I've got to ask you besides the uh, wonderful Eric Asimov at the New York Times what wine writers I don't do you care like? I don't care I read it for I read it for just like those descriptions of like the smell and the earthiness like I don't follow people in particular I do love I, I do love Eric Asimov stuff. because because there's so there, it, well, there are two ways to go with wine writing right a lot of them are, are very serious and do their homework and and the other side are the campy ones where they, you know this wine is so horrible, it's like running over a dead skunk and imbibing the, imbibing the scent of oil in a crankcase. You know, that's the kind of, you know, so a lot of writers, they really camp it up. One of my favorites is this British guy, Oberon Waugh, who died. I've mentioned him before on this podcast, I think. He used to be the wine columnist I think, for The Spectator. And he, to me, walked the, he walked the line between the campiness and the sort of knowing yeah, things, you know. And one of the great wine writers just had his house burned down in the <laughs> Jay McInerney, who actually is quite good. He writes, who does he write for now? He was at the Wall Street Journal. They had a whole book, right, about wine. He's written a couple of wine books. I forget. I don't know if he's still at the journal. He's been in various places, but he's actually quite good at it. Jen, your three favorite wine writers in alphabetical <laughs> order. <laughs> three favorite wines. I'm ready. Who do you go to? Somebody that I've, I I really like in terms of music criticism has been Ellen Willis, the late Ellen Willis, yeah. who's no longer alive. Parl, what you mentioned about this cross-indexing of our neurons or our impulses, like I think that she really did this incredible job of conveying the experience of music as an experience and as something that also touched on larger cultural forces, prejudices, biases. And, you know, she was somebody who also wanted to present rock music and pop music as something that should be pleasurable, which I think at a time when a lot of the music critics were men, that was something that was Mm. really revolutionary. (laughs) So she's somebody that I always read, even though a lot of the music, what you were saying, Parl, about some of the critics that you read, you know, a lot of the music is not necessarily stuff that speaks to me. Ellen Willis, her sentences haven't dated in the least, which is the great thing about her. I mean, she's our contemporary. I mean, you pick up that book and it's like reading someone who's alive right now, except that she had some weird taste. I can't remember. I think she went off on bands like, bands she wrote, like, I don't know, Grand Funk Railroad. And, like, and she would, like, go on, like, three-part essays about them. In my mind, anyway, I'd be like, no, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, great that's, taste in general. that's exactly it, where she would write about these bands, and I would think, well, this isn't my kind of music. But she does such a good job of conveying why it moves her. I'm almost convinced. That's also, that's a danger yeah. in writing about pop culture generally, is that you, you might have a couple of things that you really love that 30 years from now it's been sifted out that's and true. doesn't really, you know. you know. You know how you can tell, you can tell if a writer's any good if you are writing about a certain topic and you read something they've written on that topic. Mm. And that's how you know if they're good because they feel like, oh my God, I just, I couldn't write that well about oh, this. God, and, and, I, and I just recently reviewed a biography of Janis Joplin. 
And I went back and read an essay that Ellen Willis had written for Rolling Stone on Joplin, Mm. and every sentence was just beautiful. Like, every sentence belongs to be hung up in in a frame somewhere. And I was like, good Lord, you know. (laughs) And um, it's just how you tell. When you're thinking about it, and you're right there, and you know a lot, and yet this person somehow knows eight times more than you and can express it better than you can. Yeah, well, that's an even longer list, people who who (laughs) make you want to put your pen down. Well, guys, thanks. Dwight from afar, thank you, and Happy New Year. And Jen and Parl, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jen. Hi, John. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.